This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's 2-2-2022, and there are just too many things going on to cover. On the world stage, Russian President Vladimir Putin has stepped up his action against Ukraine, recognizing the independence of two separatist regions and deploying more Russian forces. He's calling, quote, peacekeepers. Western leaders have already begun to respond with punitive measures. Are we doing enough? Last night, Parliament passed the Emergency Measures Act, the Emergencies Act, amid lots of criticism and charges of government overreach. And here in Ontario, pre-election goodies from Premier Doug Ford. Not only is he scrapping the license renewal fee, he's giving us refunds for the last two years. That's 240 bucks for every driver. Does that get your attention? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Hi Libby. Okay, so out of all those things, Karen, what is most important to you? Wow. Um, well, certainly, I think. <laughs> I mean, geez, the I think the Emergency Measures Act actually, um, or the Emergencies Act, continues to be a, um, an, an, an ongoing issue in terms of how the first time it's ever been invoked, everyone's keeping an eye on how it's being used. And the fact that, I mean, again, it's hard to declare an end to an emergency, but just the fact that it's getting extended on a daily basis, it seems, um, as circumstances warrant, um, is still something of a concern to me because, um, you know, I, I was of the opinion that it, it wasn't necessarily a national emergency that we were responding to. We were certainly responding to a serious situation in Ontario, but whether we needed uh, that act to be invoked is, is a question, and its ongoing use continues to be a question as well. Uh John, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think, you know, both issues have equal importance. I think one uh, sort of on an international scale, obviously, one on the domestic scale. I think um, uh, Karen's point on, on, the, on the Emergencies Act, I think, is, is quite valid with respect to the, the, there's no, no, you know, no reason for, um, or I should say there's a reason for uh, people being so divided uh, about it, right? There's some that obviously say that there's an overreach. But I think the people of Ottawa right now, Libby are quite happy that whatever it took, it, it worked and it got people out of Ottawa. And I've seen pictures. I think all of us have been riveted to the TV all weekend. And, and the pictures we saw coming out of Ottawa yesterday with the streets being cleaned and the trucks gone and, 
and you know, just it just it, it's probably just a delight for for Ottawa residents who probably think, you know, what if it took the emergency act, then so be it. I think that the longer term implications, I think, are going to be more in question with respect to, to why we did this. And we've got a couple lawsuits, not least of which from the Civil Liberties Association, and then I think you know the Premier of Alberta, uh, Government of Alberta, is going to challenge this. So that is going to have some level of interest going forward. Um, but there is the debate now to say, okay, well, look, okay, it's done now, it's over with. Do we still need this? And, and maybe it was symbolic to have it passed uh, yesterday uh, by virtue of just having having it stamped. You know, the Senate's going to be debating it. But, you know, do you, do you, do you make this thing a little bit shorter than when it's supposed to be? So I think that's a debate that people are going to be looking at over the next little while. Uh, Charles Souza, there's been a lot of criticism of the Prime Minister saying that he is dividing people rather than bringing them together. And yesterday in his comments, he doubled down on that. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, he is uh, being criticized for what would seem to be, uh, I don't know, putting gas on the the fire, so to speak. But the Measures Act, the War Measures Act, that's severe. This is not what this is. This is the Emergencies Act, which was intended because uh, the War Measures Act was so severe. This does not impede on the chartered rights and freedoms. There is some protection still being made for the public and us, because we're not in that situation. Um, it's, it's about going after the money and following the money and ensuring that these initiatives, these blockades, these occupations, this notion of overthrowing the government, uh, putting other people at risk does not get repeated and ensures that those that are breaking the law are brought to justice effectively. Because what you don't want is, them, is these individuals to feel like, hey, this is our right, and we're going to continue to do so. It's not their right, because they're infringing upon our rights. Yeah, and the but, Emergencies Measures Act, uh, this Emergencies Act enables the government to take the appropriate measures alongside other levels of government and, if, and, and, and the police to ensure that, uh, uh, the, the, you know, within the short period of time that they're going to have to stop this from taking place. Or continuing to think. What I'm asking, though, is would the Prime Minister have been better to mm-hmm. say something a little more healing? Um, I have been of that mind from the beginning. And, uh, and it's unfortunate because these individuals, people that are there protesting, the majority of them are people that are frustrated. They're just looking for leadership and people to say, listen, we get it. You're not happy. We're not happy. A lot of people are taking vaccines. You don't believe in them. You don't want to take them. We get it. But we have to stick to this. We have to stay together. We'll get through this effectively, and then we'll be back to normal. He, instead of making and planning the brush like anybody who's an anti-vaxxer is somehow a Nazi, that that correlation is really tough for those people that I know personally who are anti-vaxxers. They are, hey, I take offense to that. That's not who I am. And that part is very unfortunate. Uh, and getting on to this business about following the money. So it gave Canadian banks the right to freeze accounts. Now, it was interesting that there have been some reports, uh, one from MP Chuck Straw, saying, hey, single mother who uh, donated 50 bucks had her account frozen. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, the the government says that's not their intent. I haven't personally fact-checked that claim. But Christian Freeland also came out with a very tough statement yesterday saying, hey, if your account's been frozen, you want to unfreeze it, then stop this. Karen. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there was um, the, the claim. Karen? And, uh, I, oh, sorry. I think we lost you for a second. Go ahead. 
Okay. Yeah, I think the claim that Chuck Straw made was anecdotal, and I'm not sure it was based in fact. Um, but, you know, I, I think it is a serious issue that the government is freezing Canadian bank accounts. And I, I understand to follow the money to shut down the financing was critical to ending the, the, the occupation. But, but the whole notion that the government could, without court order, freeze someone's bank account and the RCMP can hand over names to a bank, and it's unclear. I mean, to say, well, just stop behaving the way you're behaving and you'll have your account unfreezed, that, that's a little... That that's that's a that's a that's a serious situation um, because what does that mean <laughs> to stop doing what you're doing so that you can get your access to your money? Well, she said stop um, being part of this convoy is specifically yeah. what she said. But is that an overreach in your opinion? In my opinion, it is. It is trying to suggest that the police didn't need to take strong action to bring this occupation to an end. But freezing bank accounts and, um, you know, the, the measures that they're taking, I think, are overreached, particularly because um, even people who are fully vaccinated are coming to the understanding that vaccine mandates are limited in their use. And so reasonable people who have been fully vaccinated and boosters and have a booster shot can, can see the limitations of the vaccine mandate and can appreciate it. So when Justin Trudeau is speaking, he's not just speaking to anti-vaxxers. He's speaking to vaccinated people that understand that the, the limita- what, what the limitations of a vaccine mandate really are. And so I, I think that he's, he's digging himself into a hole unnecessarily. And the doubling down, I mean, every time you double down, it's harder and harder to get out of the hole that you're digging. And I, I think that there does need to be a pivot. Well, I mean, even the public health officials say, are saying that we have to learn to live with this. Restrictions yeah. are being eased. Uh, before we move to some call- callers, Charles, what about the freezing of bank accounts uh, beyond the biggest organizers who got millions of dollars? Well, that's the point. Beyond the big ones, you still need to have some some measures in place in order to go after them. And that's what this is about. There are elements, there are donors that are not necessarily Canadian, there are foreign parties out there engaging in this process. There is a talk about overthrowing a government. There is talk about, you know, just, you know, hurting our economy and putting us at risk. The government has to take the steps. If we don't, then they'll be criticized for not going after those that are causing harm. Um, I am very concerned about people's privacy especially normal people who feel that they're doing a good thing by helping the truckers. They feel that's appropriate. But beyond that, that's the part that we need these measures for. And they have to take the steps. And it's short term, but it's necessary. I think it's unfortunate. Okay, let's take a call from Lisa in Toronto. Hello, Lisa. Oh, hi. How are you today? Fine. How are you? What happened to you? Oh, I had a really unbelievable experience yesterday. I went to um, the Crawford and College Street Tim Hortons to get my husband a sandwich and there were two lovely ladies at the door greeting me wishing me happy family day taking notes of how many people are coming and going uh, I walked in a kid walked in behind me no mask on he had his shirt pulled up over his nose then a woman walked in uh, behind him and I looked over at her uh, she was standing parallel to me in the line and I said you need a mask that's all it took she went nuts on me. She, and I'm a, I'm a senior citizen. She called me the C word, the F and C word, at least a dozen times, if not more. 
uh, and the effing bitch word, screaming out of there. This went on for a good four or five minutes, and I'm saying to the staff, you need to, to do something with her. In the first place, you know, if they didn't have two people greeting you at the door, uh, you know, they can see who's coming and going. And this went on and on and on. The place was full of people. I was absolutely humiliated. This woman was getting up in my face, calling me. And they did nothing? Pardon me? They did nothing? The people working? Until I insisted. I said, you need to stop her. And the one woman came up and she said, okay, that's enough. You need to leave. And meanwhile, this woman, you get this F and B out of here. You get out of here. And she's going, it's people like you that have caused my life to change. And she went on and on and on. And and literally, I swear to God, ranting for a good four or five minutes. And I, I just stood my ground. I wasn't going to walk out of there and give her what she wanted. I said, I'm not going anywhere, lady. I'm not going anywhere. And I said to the staff, you need to do something about it. So she walked out. I videotaped her going to her friend's car. And I went back in and I said to the staff, you're actually monitoring people. You're actually at the door seeing who's coming in. The excuse was, oh, she she walked in really fast. We didn't see her. And I said, well, what about the boy that was ahead of her? He didn't have a mask on either. I didn't make an issue of that. The kid pulled his shirt up over his nose. Yeah, that does no good. Lisa, I'm really no sorry good, that, I, that you... you know how many fights can you pick, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not looking to fight with anybody. I'm just looking to get my husband a sandwich. And, you know, and I felt that it, I, it was appropriate for me to say to her, you need a mask. I had no idea that I would have the kind of violent, aggressive, and threatening action coming at me. I've never in my life been so humiliated. I live in the neighborhood. I don't know who was in there, to tell you the truth. There had to be 20 people in in the place at the time that were all witnessing this. I was just absolutely traumatized by this, not knowing what this woman, whether she was even going to physically attack me. She was looking around. I'm telling you, she'd had the opportunity. She likely would have. Lisa, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Thanks for telling us about it. Uh, Very unpleasant, and I know that during the siege occupation protest in Ottawa. A lot of people went through similar things, being harassed, uh, not so much for somebody asking someone else to wear a mask, but for wearing masks themselves. So this thing is really, uh, uh, certainly at least uh, in a certain, at a certain point is getting really out of hand. Um, let us turn to a more pleasant topic, the removal of the license renewal fees. I mean, it's pretty clear that the Ford government is getting on the side of drivers. They abolished some tolls that the Liberal government had put in. They're uh, really uh, doing development uh, where a lot of people say development should not be. John Capobianco, what do you think? Is that a good move? Are people going to vote for PCs because of 240 bucks? I think it's a brilliant move. I think it's exactly the, in keeping with uh, with the premier's narrative that he's building for the election campaign, which is, you know, trying to help the uh, the little guy and gal. Like I think that there's a there's a there's a, a narrative that he's trying to build to say, look, we've all been through this pandemic together. There's been rising costs. There continues to be rising costs, um, you know, in, in areas where, you know, perhaps the province can control things like the carbon tax that, that he continually finger points to, to the, the prime minister uh, and, and points for the reason why gas prices are so high. You know, grocery prices, which, of course, are, are a global issue and inflation. But there's certain things that he can control, right? There's certain things that the province can control. 
control and little things like this, which, you know, it's a lot of money for a lot of people, especially because you're, you're dealing with increases in, in food prices and gas prices. So I think it's a, it's a smart move. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get votes. You know, if that was the case, you know, Kathleen Wynne would have won the election last time because she was throwing money around like it was, it was like candy. Um, and, and she was reduced to six seats. So it doesn't necessarily equate to, uh, uh, and I know that Charles was never a, a big fan of that kind of spending, but um, it does. It does. So you know, let's create... get to let's get to Charles then. Uh, <laughs> but um, it does. It does mean though it's building a narrative for the election campaign. Wh- what do you think, part. Charles? Yeah, I mean, I listen. I, I was in that predicament uh, where we were buying votes. Now this is all about. I mean, we were offering free tuition and, and free childcare and and free drugs for, for young people, all of which was trying to incite, you know, for those pocketbook issues to help those most in need. But all those situations, we were talking to those most vulnerable. This particular situation, we're talking to those that are more affluent, those that are actually paying taxes, they're the middle class, they're the ones that are paying for our economy. This government has $20 billion more in revenue than I had when I was finance minister. $20 billion more. And that is what's projected in their next budget. And they're still going to have a huge deficit, about $15 billion, even still. Partly is because they got rid of a, of a, of a cap-and-trade system that was bringing in about 2 to $3 billion a year. Uh, partly it is because we had a green economy initiative that was taken away as a result of some of their measures. And that's unfortunate. But now, now they're actually doing the opposite. They're going to go after those that drive cars, facilitate people like me who are on the highways many times. I get it. I appreciate it. But I'm not the one that needs it. Most of these people, these pocketbook issues, the middle class, those that have their million-dollar homes, which they have to have a huge mortgage, day-to-day, it's tough. They have to put their kids through school. They gotta, there's a, they're the ones that are being squeezed most, and that's who, Doug, uh, that's who the premier is providing some support. But is it where it's most needed? No. I think we need to, again, look at who's going to pay for these highways? Who's going to pay for the new ones that are coming forward? Same these people. Are very fiscal. They have a structural deficit that they can't get out of if they take these kind of measures. And, and Karen, I mean, uh, you know, uh, one of the things, cities are broke. They look to the senior levels of government for money. And here is a, a revenue source that, as Charles points out, it, it's it's something that's paid by people who are not in need, necessarily. Yeah, it's curious. Uh, and I, I understand the politics of it, as John was saying, because there are so many things that Doug Ford can't control going into an election where people are grumpy. And um, grumpy because they're paying more for gas, they're paying more for food, they're paying more for um, everyday expenses. And he can now point and say, well, you know, but I did this for you. I took away the, the license fee. And so it gives him an opportunity to say, here's what I'm doing for you, because I can't fix all these other things, but I can, I've done this. So I, I understand it, but, you know, in the long term, you know, how much, how much are we going to make our kids pay for? Because ultimately someone's got to pay the bill. And, you know, as I didn't hear a burning need to get rid of license plate stickers. It wasn't part of the chatter that I'm hearing people be, um, you know, concerned about. And so uh, while I understand it's good politics, I don't think it's good policy. Okay. Cheryl in Kingston. Hi, Cheryl. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. First of all, quickly, I absolutely support the Emergency Act. I don't think there was any other choice. But the big thing I really want to talk about is the billion dollars of license stickers. 
Absolutely, it's by my vote. That's never happening. We have that billion dollars in the budget. I would rather keep that billion dollars in the budget and put it where it's needed. Put it in health care. Put it in education. Give the nurses more than 1% a year for Pete's sake. And by the way, while we're now going to throw this billion dollars away that people mostly, I would say, don't really care that much. They'd rather see it in those places I mentioned. And why did he not pursue the billion-dollar congestion penalty from the 407 ETR? Another billion dollars we might have been able to have, but, but he didn't go there. So That's a me, very good point. Thank you for reminding us about that. Uh, we still uh, don't have a very clear explanation on that, Cheryl. Uh, thanks very much for your call. Yeah, I mean... Uh, she makes a really good point about salaries for nurses who are really fed up and who can't get more than a 1% increase under this legislation, even though they have been burning themselves out on the front line and other professions have seen bumps, pay bumps. Uh, that's a really good point. And, and we're talking about a surgical backlog. We're talking about people waiting for cancer treatment, all of this has to be brought back up to speed and that is going to cost money and the city is in a big hole because of transit, because people haven't been taking transit and the city legally can't be in a hole. So, you know, what is with this money? It just seems like uh, it's it's a kind of gravy and as uh, Charles pointed out, it's it's targeted at a certain group of voters. Uh, John, again, do you think it'll work? Well, you know, yet to be seen. But I, I think that, you know, you're not going to make everyone happy with every measure you're going to make. So that your caller you know, obviously felt that way. But there's a lot of people who, quite frankly, Libby, will be relieved to know that they don't have to pay the $120 a year. So, you know, there's going to be some in that regard. But I think it speaks to a larger issue of trying to help people at a time when they know that things are, are increasing in prices. So that's what, you know, that's what the narrative is going to be. Now, with respect to, you know, other issues with, you know, the, the amount of money that this government and governments across Canada have been spending during the pandemic, quite frankly needed, has been so incredible and it's going to continue. The days of balanced books and the days of talk about balancing budgets and all that kind of stuff are gone. No one, no, not one government is going to talk about balancing the books in the next two or three years. It's going to take years from that because this pandemic has recreated everybody's thinking about spending and helping government and governments helping out businesses. That's going to continue. But there's got to be some little, little way of governments being able to help you know, the middle class or, the, or anybody who can who, who can have a relief uh, a little bit at a time, that's going to be a big a big measure. And there's going to be a lot of that stuff that's going to be happening over the course of the next, you know, little while in this election campaign. Okay, Ruth in North York. Hello, Ruth. Hi, thank you for taking my call, Libby. I really enjoy your show. Thank Watch you. Up the good work. I have a comment to make. This has really gotten to me already from Mr. Ford. And I say that with reservation. This is folly. Aren't our taxes going up by this amount? Are we that ready to be bought? Shame on us. Shame on us if we so. I will not. I am so aggravated over this. You have no idea already what he's done here. I will not wait. I will not vote for this man, especially at looking at how he set out 
of what was going on in Ottawa. That's all I really want to say. I, I'm, I'm really aggravated over this. I, I hear what the other lady said. I was, I couldn't stop for a moment not talk to you about this. Okay, Ruth, thank you for Many that. In this city that we should be ashamed of. Thank you very much. Okay, Ruth, thank you for that. Boy, um, that's interesting. I, I uh, certainly understand people disagreeing with it, but getting that aggravated over it, well, that's kind of interesting. The other thing I would point out is that this is playing to the middle class, and that's traditionally been what the prime minister, the liberal prime minister, does as playing to the middle class. He's increased, uh, you know, subsidies, uh, child care, everything for the middle class. That was their mantra. Uh, Karen, what do you think? Yeah, and I think also it, it potentially puts uh, Mayor Tory in a bit of a pickle. Yes, exactly. Because he, you know, what, uh, when, when Mayor Rob Ford was the mayor, he rescinded the license plate uh, yep. sticker fee that the city of Toronto had put on. And so, you know, now Doug could turn around to John and say, well, listen, you know, the province isn't collecting it, but if you need it for transit, you can collect it now. <laughs> and that's, that's just a really awkward position because both of them are facing an election. And, um, you know, and that, and that would be certainly something he, he could do. And I don't, I don't think Mayor Tory would, would run on that platform. Um, but it, it just, it certainly just does, it creates unintended consequences and it creates many problems that didn't need to be created because, again, there was no burning need to take off this fee. Yeah, but if he Toronto is now not going to be able to collect parking tickets. Well, exactly. That's sixty million bucks right there. Well, well, they can. I think. I think if you read the legislation, they actually specifically say that you're still going to have to renew. You're not going to have to pay for it, but you're still going to have to renew in order to uh, capture the municipal fees and and unpaid four hundred seven toll. So that's part of it. You still have to go through the process of it, um, so that if you even if you're renewing it for free, you have to still get yourself to renew it. In, in the sense of making sure that you could pay and collect municipal fees and highway 407. So you made that specifically in the legislation. And are, the are you going to get a little sticker or is it going to be online virtual? Uh, I would imagine online virtual. I, I don't know. I think they're looking at that now. They probably have a solution to that maybe, but I know that they made specifically made mention of the fact that, that it, it's, you're still going to collect municipal fines and unpaid tolls. Yeah, I, I heard that. Now. I just don't know what, how the enforcement would work if it's virtual, right? There's no sticker that a cop can see is expired. If you don't have to go into the office where they look you up before you pay your money, then I think that the enforcement will be a lot less. Doesn't that yeah, make sense, Charles? It's also a check to make sure you have insurance, to check your yeah. mileage, to make, like, there's a lot of things that get done through that process. And all of that costs money. Yeah, all that costs, money. costs money that no one's going to be being, paying for. It. We're all going to pay for it through our taxes, ultimately. But those that are using the services are not going to be charged. And that's what's unfortunate here, because those that are more vulnerable are not going to be able to take advantage. So it brings me to another point. He made a promise that he would lower electricity bills. We, as a liberal government, were being criticized because rates went up, because we invested so much in new transmission and the green economy. What we want to do is re-amortize that over a longer period of time, to lower those rates, and we got criticized for doing so. Here we have a situation where Doug Ford, the premier, and his team have actually increased electricity rates, and it's perceived that they'll continue to go up. Why are we not dealing with that as opposed to licenses? Oh, we did, Charles. 
We did deal with that last week. And of course, they had an answer for that too, which was that the rates went up less than they would have under your government. Oh, that's bogus, isn't it? So anyway, being as it may, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the, the issue that rates are going up. I'd appreciate why it went up because they took a different position in terms of dealing with it. Instead, but what's going to happen is it's going to go in the tax base again, as opposed to the rate base. And that's what's unfortunate. People who are not impacted by these things are paying for it. Okay, I have to wrap us up. Interesting conversation. Thanks so much, John Capobianco, Charles Souza, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Okay, we are taking a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about immigration. Last week, the government upped its target for immigration. But in the meantime, there's a huge backlog. So how is that going to work when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Last week, Ottawa announced it is increasing immigration targets for this year, hoping to accept almost 432,000 newcomers. The move is wildly hailed given the rampant labor shortages and the refugee crises around the world. The thing is, we already have an immigration backlog of 1.8 million and much, but By no means, all of it is because of the pandemic. So how can these things be reconciled? And what do you think? Do you have any experience of this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Hart Kaminker, principal at Kaminker and Associates Immigration Law, as well as Syed Hussain, executive director of the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, and Deepak Talwar, who began his immigration process to Saskatoon in 2015. And he's still waiting. Thank you and welcome to all of you. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, let us begin Hi. with you, Hart. So how did we get to the point of having a 1.8 million backlog of our immigration process? And, and uh, you know, what does it do to put 432,000 on top of that? Well, I think, you see, as you said at the outset, uh, Libby, I think the backlog grew very much under the pandemic because a lot of a lot of processing was paper processing. So with paper processing uh, and with social distancing and everything else that came with the pandemic, the processing of those types of applications slowed down considerably. And this led to a growing backlog. I think as well, it is also a matter of resources, whether, you know, enough resources were allocated even going back before the pandemic to process applications, especially in light of the fact that, as as you said, and as many people have said, you know, we've, we've got a labor shortage and going forward in the future, we're going to need more and more skilled workers. And I think as well, you know, perhaps a delay in modernizing uh, the immigration system, digitizing it, as the minister uh, spoke about when he spoke to the Canadian club last week. And, you know, certainly the pandemic, I think, has um, made that a priority, but perhaps it's something that ought to have been done earlier in order to ensure more um, efficient processing of applications so we don't have the kind of backlog we have. And, you know, putting 432000 on top of it, I think 
is going to help address, you know, needs going forward. And I think there's also the issue of, you know, people, you know, us not, I guess, losing out on the global race for talent. So we don't want people applying to Canada and think they're going to wait years and years, as some have, unfortunately, and I guess as, as one of your guests um, uh, this afternoon seems to be in that position. Uh, because if people think it's going to take a long time in Canada, they're going to choose elsewhere and we're going to lose out on important talent that we need. Well, yeah, but I think uh, they more than think it's going to take a long time. Deepak Talwar, tell us a bit of your story. You started your process in 2015. Uh, what kind of uh, an immigration class were you coming in on, and what's happened? Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Libby, and bringing up this serious issue. Uh, I started my immigration process in May 2015 when I make a, uh, made an uh, exploratory visit to Saskatoon to explore business opportunities. So I applied for that, and I landed in Canada in July 2017 and started my business. What uh, kind of a business is it, if I may ask? Sorry? What kind of a business do you have? It's a cabinet shop, okay. cabinet manufacturing shop. Yeah. So I, I moved under the business immigration so I started my business and I applied for, uh, after I, I was nominated by Saskatchewan government, uh, I applied for my uh, PR, paper-based application, on 24th of October 2019. Okay. And I was issued an acknowledgement of receipt on 23rd of January. And then there was a biometric instructions letter for my daughter who lives in, who was studying in U.S. at that time. It was on 29 January 2020, and which was completed on 12 February 2020. And there was total silence after that. And now on 31st of December 2021, I get additional document request. And I provided these documents on 28 January 2022, and I'm still waiting for so, now. so under what uh, status are you in the country? I'm, uh, I'm on, like, work permit. It's, it's, it, uh, so my work permit expired on 2nd of November, and I applied for uh, ext- extension of my work permit. And I was issued an extended, like, like a supplementary letter to attach with my existing work permit until they take decision on my work permit. So it's also going to expire on 2nd of March. Oh, that's coming up. Yeah, it's a panic situation for me. And I have not heard anything from IRCC. I have raising web forms and all those things. Calling IRCC is like waiting for one and a half hour. After that phone gets disconnected. It's a tough situation for me. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we're hearing, that people make applications, uh, presumably in paper, and they don't even get a receipt for months and months and months. And then there's this waiting on the phone, and there's no word. There's no update. There's no no nothing. Uh, Syed Hassan, you have a, a different perspective on this. You represent migrants. Yeah, I want to. I want to actually go back to what you, you know, opened with, and really try to clarify because there's actually been so much misinformation about this backlog. It's being used for political purposes. I mean, yes, there is a backlog, but let's talk about these things one at a time. So, the so-called 1.8 million backlog—that's about half a million permanent resident applications, and the other is just study permit and work permit applications. Uh, that doesn't include refugee processing. Um, so, and it's important to distinguish between them. 
Because then when you talk about the 432,000, those are permanent residents. And all, many, if not all of them, will probably be selected from that backlog of half a million. So it's not actually on top of. Uh, it is, uh, it's one of the mechanisms through which that's going to be processed. Now, 432,000 is not actually a large number. And frankly, it's not an announcement. Canada has been announcing its immigration levels for three years at a time. It was, it, there's been a slight adjustment, mostly around uh, because of the Afghan refugees. But generally, it's the same pattern that's been going on for many years. And it's very important to understand this number, 432,000. These are targets. Over the last 15, 20 years that we've been doing this, we've never seen these targets met. These are PR spin announcements. You know, COVID happens. You suddenly create a new program. The Syrian refugee crisis happens. You change the numbers. And, and I think that's how it should be. You've got these targets, but they're not really representative of what eventually ends up happening. So... The vast majority of people that come into the country, that's why half a million of the 1.8 are permanent residents, but the other 1.3 million are temporary permits. And it's important to understand that the vast majority of people who come to Canada are on temporary permits. And so this goes to the last point you made about labor shortage. Labor shortage is not being filled by immigrants. It's being filled by temporary workers who are in exploitable conditions. These are people who can't speak up when they're mistreated at work people who can't get access to healthcare, people who can't even have their families visit them, who can't leave the country if they're undocumented, who have no path to permanent residency. So they're not in the backlog. They just can't apply because the immigration rules keep most people permanently temporary. It's important to understand that without permanent resident status, you really don't have a mechanism to access rights. And the Canadian government has created this vast group of second-class citizens uh, who come here, work here for a few years, can't get their permanent residency and leave. And the backlog is definitely, I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, for example, it took my permanent resident application five years, and, you know, I got it and a few years ago. So this is not limited to COVID-19. There are migrant care workers who take care of children, secondly. Yes, it takes, it does PR. take. They too. Yeah, but it's not just, you know, it's not COVID that's causing this. It's a question of uh, political priority and you're stealing Paul to, you know, feed Peter. And it's this moving people around. But the vast majority of people aren't in the backlog. They simply can't apply. Okay. Uh, we have to take a break. Uh, we will be back with one more voice from the conservative immigration critic, uh, uh, Syed Hassan. Thank you very much for your perspective. And we continue with Hart and Deepak after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have been talking about immigration. We are talking to Hart Kaminker, principal at Kaminker and Associates Immigration Law. We're talking to Deepak Talwar, who is still waiting for his permanent residence status after beginning the process in 2015. And he came here as a business owner. He started a business in Saskatoon. And now I would like to uh, bring in the conservative immigration Critic Jasraj Singh Hallen. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me today. 
Okay, uh, before we get to you, Mr. Hallen, Hart Kaminker, our last guest, was talking about how the system creates people who are permanently temporary, and it's not fair. Do you agree with that characterization? Um, I'm not sure. Oh, are you asking me? Uh, Hart. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think that there is certainly some truth to that uh, because there certainly are some classes of workers that it would be more difficult for them to find a pathway to permanent residence. I mean, in the course of the pandemic, the government did set up several programs that did help people who might have had difficulty in the past, a TR to PR pathway, um, refugee healthcare worker pathway. These were programs that were announced and operated during the pandemic. You know, having said that, certainly there are pathways for temporary workers to permanent residents, but I think the issue right now is that those pathways aren't being used. So, for example, the Canadian Experience class um, is one, and the government has not issued invitations to apply to um, in, in that category, which means we have temporary workers here who, as, um, as DPAC, as in the situation whose work permits are going to run out and may be forced to leave the country, and then perhaps losing out on those individuals who have perhaps been educated here, worked here, are valuable employees to their employers who want them to stay here. So I think that's another challenge um, that's in the system right now, and it's the challenge I think the government needs to address. Uh, Jasraj Singh Hallen, um, the government announced these new targets or newish targets, and it comes as we have a backlog, as we have a labor shortage. What is your view of this? Uh, thank you for the question. Those are some really great points that were made before uh, myself as well. Uh, look, I've been harping on backlogs ever since I got elected in 2019. It's been my mantra. It's something that's deeply uh, affecting families that are not being able to reunite with each other. Uh, you know, people are missing their birth, their kids' birthdays, their first steps, all these milestones because of the not getting families to reunite with each other. This is also causing massive health, mental health on those people. Uh, we hear about stories all the time where sometimes people divorce or, you know, there's sadly cases of suicide because of the backlog that is a liberal made backlog is what I've been calling it because it's never been this high before. It's also hurting our small businesses and Canadian businesses because because of the, the way that um, the system is, it's not efficient enough to keep up with, with what our labor demands are right now. We have a labor crisis in this country that that's supposed to be solved by, by proper immigration it's, and at the end of the day, what is it doing? It's, it's hurting our economy, uh, which we already know is not doing the best. We, we had like something like $200,000, $200, jobs that were lost in January as well. Uh, backlogs are a huge issue. We want the government to take this seriously because of the, uh, the human life cost it has and the effect it has. Um, I've called for many things like the, I was very proud to be the person that actually recommended the TR to PR pathway. And I was glad to see that they implemented it, but you know, this government is, is known for great announcements, but the follow-through isn't there. And we've seen the, the negative impact of these backlogs and what they do to people. So we will continue to push for it. I, I feel like we need to have a more modernized system. I would say something like an Amazon where people know where their applications are, move everything online so that applicants are not stuck in this loophole or just, you know, with this government, what we see is they're picking winners and losers. And we're not seeing a long-term plan. When you have a government that's been in for six years and you have four different immigration ministers, it doesn't show that, that you're serious about a long term plan to fix these issues. Yeah, the, one of the things that. that one of the things that the immigration minister spoke about last week, he said the system 
is being modernized. How long that takes? Well, I have no idea. Deepak Talwar, in the meantime, how do you feel about keeping going on, on temporary visas, work permit to work permit? It's a huge emotional and like financial cost for me. Uh, every time, uh, like we are four members here in Canada, so every time somebody's uh, uh, passport is expiring, then we have to apply again for the work permit, student permit, and it's a, it's a, it's a mental like I don't know how to explain it, but it's very difficult situation for us. And is and it expensive? Situation now. Now I am in like uh, I applied for my work permit extension on second of November. And they gave me gave me supplementary letter till second of March, and I don't know what to do now. Uh, yeah, is it is it an expensive process as well? Yeah, yeah, it, it costs a lot. Like it, it takes time and, uh, and and lots of money. Hart Kaminker, um, Mr. Hallen brought up the whole issue of, of family reunification, which is a whole other. Stream. I don't think we have time to get into it, but th- that's a really difficult situation as well. No, undoubtedly, it's undoubtedly a difficult situation. Uh, you know, for spouse, you know, spouses um, to be separated from their family for you know, more, you know, for a long time after marriage, and it's not so easy. You know, for spouses to see each other because, you know, it's not, you know, you can go visit your spouse who might be overseas, but you've got to get time off work. You have limited vacation and uh, it's costly, uh, other issues like that. So I think that is an issue. And also, you know, the the parent and grandparent sponsorship program um, also has difficulties and with respect to getting family reunited here in Canada. And uh, do you agree that most of these 432,000 newcomers will be among the 1.8 million backlog? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's it certainly, it certainly. I, I think, as your, your previous guest set out, I mean, it's certainly possible that that is the case because, you know, these are people who are pending permanent residence. So, you know, if if you're allocating a certain number of visas per year, uh, then certainly they would be amongst people who are who are those who have not been granted permanent residence, but will be in the years to come. So they could fall within that 432,000. Do you have a view of that, Jasraj Singh Hallen? Um, yeah, look, the the whole overall thing is just the system is not, we got to fix the system. There's uh, like, they're picking winners and losers in this whole thing. And that's that's not fair to applicants. That's not fair to to people that are here that are that own businesses that need the help as well. So what we want is it's great that they've announced these numbers. Look, Canada, it's not about the numbers; it's about the system itself. It's it's easier to just keep accepting these applications and, and approve, approve, approve. But to actually get them here is is that what's really troubling? And and I feel for Deepak Talwar, who I actually spoke about in Parliament. I used his name and his story to show how how our system is actually hurting people. And the fact that there's people coming here, but they can't, they don't have their PR cards in hand at the same time. And sometimes they're sitting around months on end. We, we know that there's a nursing shortage as well. There's nurses ready to go, but because they don't have a PR card, they can't work. Their kids can't go to school. They can't get mortgages. Just this system needs to be fixed so that we stop hurting people. Well, uh, but if they have a work permit, presumably they could work or not. They, they can work, but the but some people don't. They're not. They're in a loophole where they've completed their um, 
they're, let's suppose, like nursing. They want to go into nursing. It would help us because of the strain on the healthcare system. But it's their PR card is not here. So in some cases, when they have kids, their kids can't be put into school either. I have a lot of people that come into my office that are just sitting around that we're trying to push just for a card to be printed. Like our Edmonton office here, there's a whole floor almost that's dedicated for that. But they're they're not efficient enough to have enough people go in there and print those cards. And so, you know, people can't get mortgages. People can't put their kids in school. So we need to we need to fix this overall, um, you know, thing. And it's very concerning, I will say, that any questions that I ask in the House of Commons, the minister is very, he brushes off real concerns. I, I take these concerns of our constituents very seriously. And I'll just, you know, quoting the minister himself in the House of Commons that these are theatrics. This is drama. That's what he says about the concerns that we've raised with our, about our con- constituents to the minister. So that's why there's a very concerning thing that it doesn't seem like they care. Uh, we are starting to run out of time. Hart Kaminker, what would you like to leave us with? Well, no, I, I think I echo some of you know the, con- the, the concerns that th- there are people who are, st- are who are stuck, you know, uh, such as Deepak, you know, in this, you know, you know, potentially beyond work permit, and there are issues, you know, with respect to that. And I think again, you know, Deepak is a situ, you know, is coming here to start a business. If we want to track business people to Canada, come and start business and create jobs. Uh, that's not the way to do it. So undoubtedly, it's a system that uh, needs fixing and uh, in order to be modernized, in order to really meet the challenges that we're going to face in the future. Deepak, what would you like to leave us with? Are you, tell me, are are you sorry you chose Canada? Yeah, uh, I visited my friend uh, in Edmonton in 2014, and I was very impressed by Canadian culture. Sorry, thank you, and all those things. I made a plan to move to Canada, but now I feel sorry about myself and my family. To like everybody is in like anxiety, and my daughter. I have not met my daughter for the last two years. She's like three years fight from here, so it's a very panic situation for me. So uh, even uh, uh, I am feeling the shortage of labor, like in my business. I need uh, people. Uh, hiring is getting difficult, so it's a good plan to bring more people, but at the same time, they should process the, the, the previous applications. And uh, last word to Jasraj Singh Hallan. 20 seconds, please. Look, thank you so much for having me. I, I want to echo that the pain and the emotional stress that Deepak is under because I feel that every single day, we as a Conservative Party want a more, more efficient and fair um, immigration system. We will keep pushing for that. And you know what? That's It's upon all of us to keep pressing this Liberal government to make sure that we're making people's lives easier. Immigrant success is Canada's success. So we need to make sure that we have a strong economy here and a strong immigration system so Canada can succeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hart Kaminker, Deepak Talwar, and Jasraj Singh Hallan. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.